Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Salim Ali will join us to discuss soil to foil. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, aluminum, who might guess that it could be the key to industrial sustainability? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Salim Ali. Dr. Ali is currently the chair of the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences and the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and the Environment at the University of Delaware. He's also a member of the United Nations International Resource Panel. He is selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. He has written extensively on this issue, including the previous book, Earthly Order, and has penned the new book, Soil to Foil, Aluminum, and the quest for industrial sustainability. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. Fantastic book you put together here, Soil to Foil. I'm curious how you became interested in the topic and decided to put the book together. You know, my background is in chemistry, though now I see myself very much as an environmental system scientist. And so I've always been fascinated by the elements of the earth. I was actually approached by the publisher, Columbia University Press, who had seen some of my earlier books where I've written about our relationship with minerals, looking at broader issues of sustainability in terms of non-renewable versus renewable resources. And they asked me to do a book on one element. And they said, you can choose a, an element, but uh, more likely a metal, which we can relate to. So I started to think about what metal should I write about? There have been books on gold, there are platinum and uranium. And I felt that aluminum had been neglected in some ways. You know, the earlier books on aluminum were very much focused on either uh, the military industrial complex aspects of aluminum, or they were very academic books. What I wanted to write was a book for a broad general audience, which uses aluminum as a broader parable of our relationship to materials. And aluminum has these fascinating characteristics. You know, it's the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust, but it was one of the last metals to be isolated for use. And that was because of its very strong bonds with oxygen and it's very difficult to isolate aluminum metal on its own. It doesn't exist on its own in nature. It's bound with oxygen. It became particularly interesting then to understand that story of how aluminum became so widely used given the fact that it was isolated so late. And then also the range of uses is so phenomenal, you know, and hence the title of the book that you've got uses that range from building aircraft and furniture all the way to wrapping your sandwich in foil. So those are the factors which really led me to write this book. And I think understanding the story of aluminum also tells us a lot about how 
we as a society consume materials, how we can make that consumption more sustainable, because among metals, aluminum is one of the most recycled metals also. It's also got some amazing features in terms of its uses for health and safety. You know, for example, aluminum is used in Tetra Pak packaging, which is an important mechanism whereby you can get dairy products to the developing world. You don't need to refrigerate Tetra Pak. So all these fascinating aspects of aluminum attracted me to the story. How does use of aluminum compare with other materials in our environment? Yes, yep. So uh, alum, you know, which is a complex salt of aluminum, that has been used for centuries, but people who used it didn't know there was a metal hiding in the salt. So alum has very different properties from aluminum metal, but alum was used as a mordant in dyeing, for example, where for textiles, it helps the dyes to adhere to the textile. So I tell the story of alum mining in the Mediterranean and how alum was so important in terms of the textile industry and even the Catholic Church had a huge investment in alum mining and controlled the alum trade for a long time because of all the textiles and the fanfare that went around using different colors and in rituals, including purple, which was a, a very rare color naturally occurring. And so there were certain species of snails in the Mediterranean from which the purple dyes were extracted. And those dyes would only adhere to the fabric if you used alum as the mordant. So you've got that amazing history of the salts of aluminum. But this is very different from other metals, like, for example, tin and copper. We were able to isolate them thousands of years ago. So we had certainly the alloys of tin and copper that that's what gave us bronze. And the Bronze Age, we have an entire age named after that because bronze was the defining metal of, uh, of uh, our early uh, civilizational period. And then we moved on to the Iron Age once we were able to isolate iron. Certainly iron salts are quite ubiquitous as well, but the metal was isolated much earlier than aluminum. And so there are some very important differences therein and that aluminum also has from a chemical perspective, this very interesting and puzzling property that it, even though it is so abundant in the Earth's crust, no organism evolved to metabolize it. Whereas like with iron, uh, the second most abundant metal in the Earth's crust, but iron metabolism is widely found in organisms, including our own body. You know, of course, hemoglobin is uh, the center of the hemoglobin molecule is iron. But aluminum, even though it's so abundant, because of its very particular chemical properties, no life evolved to metabolize aluminum. And so I also talk in the book about why that's the case. There are certain specific chemical characteristics of aluminum which prevented that. And that has also raised questions about its you know, impact on health and so on. And I go into the science behind that and, and uh, you know, making it accessible, of course, for a general audience. It was kind of valuable until you had a very efficient method to isolate it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it used to be in the, the early 19th century, aluminum metal was much more valuable than gold. You had jewelry made of aluminum. You had the choicest uh, utensils and cutlery in France were made of aluminum during the, the period of, you know, Emperor Napoleon II and others. Subsequently, also, uh, aluminum was uh, highly prized in, in that regard. So what happened then was that this process that was invented in parallel in, in the United States and in France became 
the, the conduit whereby we could economically extract aluminum. And the, the story of that discovery is also fascinating because in the US, the man who discovered it was an undergraduate student at Oberlin College in Ohio named Charles Hall. And it's also very inspiring for my students that such a, a young guy as an undergraduate was able to make such a monumental discovery with guidance from his mentors. And he became the first CEO of Alcoa. He founded the aluminum company Alcoa, which still exists today. On the other side of the Atlantic, the gentleman who discovered the same process independently, Harry Old, he did not have the same success because he didn't have the same business acumen that Charles Hall did. So it's also a fascinating story of how discoveries lead to different industrial trajectories. As you were researching this topic, what was the most surprising thing that you came across in looking at the history of aluminum? Well, one of the really fascinating and surprising things was that aluminum mining, often people think of mining happening, you know, in very distant locations and so on. And a lot of the aluminum mining actually happened in the early days in Caribbean islands. So if you look at the history of Jamaica, Cuba, many of these, of these islands in the Caribbean, aluminum was a major resource that was extracted there. And it became very important for World War II, particularly because of the aircraft manufacturing. So these areas became strategically really significant. And aluminum's main ore is bauxite, and it's often found in tropical areas. But then, you know, the supply chain for extracting aluminum is quite complex because you need a certain catalyst to extract it. And the kind of secret sauce that Charles Hall and Harry Hall found was the mineral cryolite, which is a, a fluoride mineral aluminum, but it, it's not to extract the aluminum from it, but to use it as a catalyst so that bauxite, when it is treated with cryolite, allows for the metal to be much more easily isolated. And this mineral cryolite was only mined at one location in the entire world. And even now, you know, that's the only mine that has existed for cryolite, and that was in Greenland. <laughs> and so uh, Greenland became a really important strategic location during that World War period because of the cryolite that was mined to make sure that the aluminum could be extracted. Then, as in innovation, the, the other aspect of this, the story of innovation, that once they, they were able to discover a synthetic alternative to cryolite, a synthetic form of cryolite, we didn't need to mine it anymore. And that completely changed the game with, with reference to Greenland. How aluminum is now becoming part of this conversation of sustainability in terms of how we think about our use of other materials. Well, aluminum is a really good example of what I call the material energy nexus. You know, with any kind of material usage, there's a concomitant energy component in terms of both the energy needed to extract it or the embedded energy within the material itself. And so with aluminum, because it requires a lot of energy to actually extract the metal, even with the catalysts and so on, there's an economic incentive to recycle it as well. What we find is that a lot of the aluminum smelters were, of course, situated in areas where you had cheap energy. So places like upstate New York or Quebec, where you had hydropower and even now in Norway, for example, Norsk Hydro, even though it's originally a, a hydroelectric company, is a major processor of aluminum. They have also developed, they use the same smelters also to recycle aluminum. Because of the economic alignment with recycling, aluminum provides also a really good case of how human innovation can move towards a circular economy. 
which should be our goal ultimately, where we are able to reuse, remanufacture, and recycle our material needs. Product design can play a role in promoting this kind of circular economy. Yes, absolutely. So with the recycling, part of the challenge is also making sure that we are able to extract the material without health and safety concerns for people who are working. So then you have to design products in a way which is modular so you can take them apart more easily. And ultimately, the other aspect of this is we should design products which can be serviced through modularity. So recycling should be a last resort in a circular economy. Ultimately, you want to first try to see if you can take out and innovate parts of the product so you have less material usage. And then if that's not possible, ultimately you move towards recycling. So modularity product design is absolutely crucial. That's also important because in order to recycle, you need a certain stock of material that has come at the end of its life. And our ultimate goal from a sustainability perspective is to have more durable products. So durability and recycling can be at odds with each other at times. And I talk about this challenge also in the context of aluminum. And many of the electronics that we use, like our laptops, have aluminum shells. But there's also a business imperative to try and make them more obsolescent, as we say, because the companies want to, of course, have new products so they can make new revenue. But that's not necessarily always good from a sustainability perspective. So how do you shift jobs from manufacturing to service should be an interesting question. If we can move more jobs from manufacturing to servicing the product where you can take it apart, remanufacture parts of it so that it's efficient and still usable without having to build a completely new product. I think that should be our ultimate goal. And aluminum and its usage in various industries provides us a way forward in understanding that. We keep shifting the blame on the consumer. I think ultimately regulators have a role to play. And that's why in the European Union, just uh, in this last year, the right to repair regulations have made a huge difference because they are making manufacturers design products so they can be repaired. So, the, you know, that kind of right to repair is going to be really important for industry, especially with metals which are used in products like aluminum to make sure we have a more sustainable outlook moving forward. What other kinds of policy changes do you think would be beneficial for driving these kinds of shifts? Well, one of the things I've argued for in some of my writings and certainly with the work with the International Resource Panel is that we need some kind of a global agreement around mineral supply. Right now, we are in a very tough situation where there is considerable what we call resource nationalism. Countries want to have their own mineral supply because they see that as a security imperative. That can lead us down a very inefficient path in terms of having more mines, more processing, more smelting, because countries are just trying to have everything on their own, which may not be good for the planet. If we had a global agreement on mineral supply, we could mine where it's more efficient, recycle where it's more appropriate, smelt where it's more appropriate in terms of energy usage, and not get into this very geopolitically charged area where one country is trying to fight with the other just so that they have this sense of security. An agreement could provide that sense of security and make the process more efficient. So I've argued for that in some of my recent writings as well, and we hope that within the UN system uh, that can be moved forward as well.
people get together and talk about materials sustainability? Well, there is a certain level of treaty fatigue. I don't see a new treaty on minerals, but what I think could be possible is an inter-treaty protocol where countries can say, look, we have set certain targets for the Paris Agreement, what are the material needs to meet those targets? And let's cooperate and make sure that we have supply assurance for metals which are needed for the green transition. So there isn't a scramble and competition and conflict between China and the US and Brazil and Russia and others. Rather, it should be like, this is for the greater good of the planet, at least for this supply stream, let's cooperate. We can decide on the other stuff, which is mineral security for defense and all that's a separate matter. But at least for the green transition, we could have an inter-treaty protocol that focuses on material supply security. As a case study is a good metaphor instigating these broader conversations about sustainable resource management. Yeah, I think that it helps, you know, to sharpen the, the narrative. If you can think about one metal, it helps the public really understand the complexity of supply chains more generally. So, uh, and because aluminum is so close to us, we use it on daily basis. We, you know, the cars we drive in, the planes we fly in, the laptops we use, the telephones we use, the foil we use it in the kitchen. It, it is so ubiquitous that I think when you encounter something on a daily basis, it makes you, it makes you think better around those. So I'm hopeful that it can make a difference. Plus, uh, aluminum supply chain, you know, ranges from mines in Guinea and the Caribbean to smelters in Iceland and Norway to manufacturing sites in the U.S. and Canada and Australia and so on. So, you know, it's it's a global supply chain, very complex supply chain. So it touches a lot of lives, a lot of economies. So I'm hoping that, yes, it can be a parable that has a, a resonance and can lead to better lessons across the board. In that regard, then, maybe on a very pedestrian note, what is the correct way to pronounce it? Aluminum or aluminium? <laughs> yeah, so this is that, you know, divide across the Atlantic. Uh, so certainly in the U.S. it's aluminum and in the rest of the world it's aluminium. And there are different urban myths about what caused this. Uh, one suggestion is that Sir Humphrey Davy, who discovered well, he didn't discover aluminum, but I would say he was one of the early scientists who felt that aluminum was a separate metal. He just couldn't isolate it. But he referred to it as at one point as aluminum and then at another point as aluminum. And so there was this confusion and that led to some uh, the Americans calling it uh, aluminum and the Europeans calling it aluminum. But then uh, there's another uh, explanation, which is that Alcoa in one of their bro brochures in early days misspelled aluminium as aluminum, and they didn't want to correct all the brochures. So they, because it was a new enough metal, they said, okay, let's just call it aluminum. <laughs> so one way or the other, this kind of tomato-tomato thing has stuck across. In this case, there's a spelling difference too, but that's the way it is. <laughs> From the title of your book, inside with the American pronunciation. Well, it's published by Columbia University Press, and they have a norm of sticking to U.S. pronunciation and spelling. So I have stuck with it. But my own training, you know, I, I I come originally from Pakistan, so I was schooled in the British system, and I grew up calling it aluminium. But I'm adaptable. <laughs> Well, I, I'm curious if maybe you have any final words regarding your book, Soil to Foil, and Quest for Sustainability. Yes, no, I would urge, um, you know, readers to engage with me further. And, uh, you know, you can check out my website, salimali.net. My other book, Earthly Order, may well be of interest to your audience also. That's a broad panoramic 
look at environmental system science and how we can connect the laws of nature to social and political systems. Uh, and that book, actually, I'm donating all the royalties for environmental education programs. That one is published by Oxford University Press, but also for a broad audience. We were talking with Dr. Salim Ali. His new book, Soil to Foil, Aluminum and the Quest for Industrial Sustainability. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. Great to connect. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.